This week, we're going to dive into Luke chapter 8. Oh, by the way, uh, somebody just leaned over and whispered in my ear that they normally get, uh, when they get their kind of winter sinus infection, it normally lasts for weeks and weeks and weeks. They were prayed for last week, and it's completely gone. So that's... uh, it's wonderful, isn't it? It's, uh, here's, the, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, we've prayed for people for many, many years and many, many thousands of people. And what we've noticed is it's not just the instantaneous thing that happens, but it's the rapid thing that happens. The thing that you'd never imagine would take place. And uh, we've seen that on a number of occasions. Uh, this week, we're going to dive into Luke chapter 8. And, and what I want you to do this week is I want you to think about... Think about how this passage that I'm about to read applies specifically to you. Now, it seems a bit strange the way that Luke has organized his material because he's organizing it sequentially and he's giving us insight into who who is there to listen to this next little piece of teaching. But it's very important that we kind of get a hold of this and understand what it is that Luke's trying to share with us today. So let's look at Luke chapter 8. And, um, and then I'm going to read probably the first eight verses or so. <clears throat> After this, Jesus traveled about from town to town, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalena, from whom seven spirits had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told them this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. Jesus said this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we have, we have a very interesting kind of segue from Jesus sharing what we looked at last week. We saw the unfolding of the Sermon on the Mount into various different narratives of people who seem to express, who articulated in their lives the things that Jesus had been talking about. And finally, we come to the woman who would carry the shame and the insult of others, washing his feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair, and how Jesus spoke forgiveness to her and challenge to those who judged her. And then Luke says, after this. So so clearly, in his mind, there is a sense in which there is a continuation even though there may be a little bit of a gap. Jesus presents to us, uh, Luke presents to us what Jesus is doing. 
Jesus is traveling from town to town, from village to village, from hamlet to hamlet. He's, he's moving around Galilee. And as he moves around Galilee, there is a large group of people who move with him. There are the 12 who he has chosen to be with him and to send them out, as Mark tells us. And then there is a wider group. It's as though Jesus has a family on mission. And this mission to share the good news of the kingdom throughout Galilee is, is being partnered by these men and women. And these women are people that are identified by name. And so we have to assume that their names would be recognized to the first readers of this gospel. Otherwise, why mention them? So these are people that are identifiable within the early church. And not only that, they are people who are given specific honor because they're recognized for a particular role that they play in the life of Jesus. They support the mission of Jesus out of their own means. Now for us, this is kind of interesting. For the first century person that was reading this, it would be utterly shocking, bordering on scandalous. It's very hard for us in the 21st century to, to kind of get an idea of how patriarchal the culture was in the time of Jesus. Women were so subjugated in most cultures, the Israelite culture, just to name but one, but across the Roman Empire, women were so subjugated that often they would be, they would be demeaned in such a way that would indicate to everyone that they're not only, only second-rate citizens, but they're second-rate human beings. An example would be that in Israel at the time of Jesus, no woman would be allowed to offer testimony in a court of law because she couldn't be trusted. Now just think about that. Here's a, here's a whole group of people, 50% of the population, who are not trusted to offer testimony. And then think about who gave the first testimony of the resurrection of Jesus. For those of you who don't know, it was women. This is incredibly radical. Incredibly radical. So radical that it would drive a coach and horses through the cultural understanding of the day. And for Luke to present that the disciples of Jesus were both men and women was utterly shocking. There was no rabbi in that time who had women who were identified as disciples. And these women were women not simply following Jesus as disciples, but they were supporting Jesus. Now, if that were true, nobody would admit it. The very fact, of course, is that Luke gives us a little insight into the context of the emerging movement of Jesus. 
The emerging movement of Jesus was so radically different from anything that anybody had ever seen before, just by being present among their number would throw shackles from you, would liberate you in ways that, that we can barely imagine. When, when Paul says, there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Gentile, barbarian or Scythian, He's saying, he's saying all of these categories that we would normally apply to people do not count to a follower of Jesus. They're absolutely equal in the eyes of God. And more than that, what we discover, of course, when we look into the social context of the early church and we discover that the means by which the church in its persecuted state survives through 250 years of brutal oppression, what we discover is that women, and particularly women of noble or wealthy origins, are the key instruments of security and succor. Often their husbands were not Christians, but they would sponsor the church and gather them into the home because even in the most patriarchal societies, the home was governed by the woman. And so in the home, the church was able to gather. And there in the home, the church was able to be supported by these women of noble and wealthy backgrounds. Women just like the women that supported and followed Jesus. You see, what Luke's doing is he is undergirding what the first readers of this text would have understood to be their life. But they must have wondered whether it was okay. Because this was so unusual, so extraordinary, that, that really it just didn't fit into anyone's worldview. And so here's Luke saying, well, what exists for you in your little extended family church, supported and, and, and secured by the role of, these, of these, particular, these particular individuals, these particular women, was exactly the same for Jesus. I'm not going to preach about that today, but it's kind of interesting, isn't it? But it's really important that we understand that what Jesus says next is applied to the people who are described at the beginning of the chapter. Because the parable of the sower is a parable that applies to the disciples who are following Jesus. There are four kinds of responses to the word of God. The word, we're told is the seed. And the word can land on the path, which of course is a hard heart. It can land on the rock or rocks. It's a little bit like fish and fishes, isn't it? Have you noticed that? When you you know, I've thought about Luke there saying on the rock because the other gospel writers talk about the rocks under the surface. Of course, 
Geologically, it's the same thing. The, the rocks that are being separated from the bedrock are the things that are in the soil that create this problem, this kind of blockage for the root system of the plants. But um, I was always raised that there are no fishes, there are only fish. That fish is both a singular and a plural. And uh, I would be corrected by the teacher in school saying, there are no, there are no fishes, there are only fish. And maybe there are no rocks, there's only rock. I, I mean, I don't know, but... <laughs> So, um, so there's a kind of half-hearted thing that's going on with the rocks. And similarly, for different reasons, with the thorns. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think the soil type, do you think the soil type is a permanent condition can the soil type change I've got some nods we've got a general assent hello Jason you're sitting right up there there well done um, he's moving around the building Chad he doesn't want to sit next to you brother um, general assent that we assume that the, the soil can change yeah I think so. We don't believe in that deterministic claptrap, do we? Where things can never change. God can change anything, can't he? So the, the soil can change. Let, let me ask you this. Is the soil type something that is really about the personality or is it the response to the word of God? It's a more complicated question, this. Because the way that Luke writes this, the way that Jesus seems to present it, is that a, so a soil is responding to a word that God is speaking. So here's a word about prayer, and the soil type, the response to that word about prayer, is one thing. And then God speaks you a word about financial giving and the soil type, the, the response to that word is different. Do you think it's possible for followers of Jesus to have a different response to different words? I think so, don't you? All right, here's, here's, some, here's, some, here's another question. We saw at the beginning of the chapter a whole bunch of disciples following Jesus. In general terms, who would represent the good soil out of that group? Just in general terms. Disciples, yeah, but which ones? The men? Very interesting. You, you, you see, you look at the passage and you think, what the dickens? What are you telling us all this stuff about? And then you read a little bit further into the gospel and you read the narrative. We'll get there soon. You'll read the narrative of Jesus on the cross. And then you'll take note of who is it that's at the cross? 
And this is what Luke says. The women who followed him from Galilee were standing with him at the cross. Where were the guys? Hiding. Okay, so if you had to identify soil type, and here in the heat of day, in the pressure of the moment, in the testing circumstances that surrounded the arrest, the trial, the conviction, and the crucifixion of Jesus, some of the disciples disappear because they can't stand the heat. Which of the soil types do you think that that represents? Say again. The rock. So rocky soil in relation to being a follower of Jesus seems to be represented by the majority of the men who followed Jesus. Is that fair? It's also fair to say that within a few weeks, that soil type had changed entirely. And they were incredibly brave, incredibly courageous, and ready to die for the purposes of Jesus. Okay, here's a, here's a bit more of a, a, a question. Of the 12, was there anybody in there that you'd say was a good soil? Of the 12 men. John, see, you're really good at this. You see, you're great. It's like a really fun Bible study, isn't it? So, so John, for those of you who, who don't know, you're, you're thinking, wow, you know, all these people are showing off their Bible knowledge here. John is the only male disciple who's there at the cross with all of the women. And when Jesus, in John's gospel, is recorded as having a conversation as he's about to take his last breath, he says to John, John, take care of Mary. And he says to Mary, woman, dear woman, go into the home of John. He'll take care of you. I wonder whether the other guys wished that they'd had the honor of taking Mary into their home when they heard that story. But of course, their response was different. So out of the 12, we've got one that's good. So it's a slightly different thing now, isn't it? We've got one that's good and at least 11 who are rocky soil. Is there any other soil in there of the other 11 other than rocky? Thorns? Path? Why do you think path? Just one word, Judas, yeah. So Judas has been with Jesus for three years and the word of God has been bouncing off him from the beginning until the end. Imagine. You're actually with Jesus for three years and the word that Jesus has shared has had so little effect in your life that you're prepared to betray Jesus and see him defeated and put on a cross. Okay, so now we've got, we've got some good soil. We've got the women and John. 
Got some rocky soil, the 10 guys, and then the one guy who's the path, who the devil comes, we're told in the, in the Gospels, the devil comes and devours the word. Yeah? Okay, let's go back to the 10. Let's see if there's any other difference in the 10. Because we said they're all rocky. Is there any other difference in there? Here's a question I've got. I just don't know the answer to it, but I'm just going to give it to you and you can talk about it over lunch. Was Thomas slightly different from the others? He seemed to have this slightly different kind of personality. He seemed to carry with him some kind of baggage that meant that he, he didn't ask the difficult questions. He just asked, I mean, sometimes they seem dumb questions, but they, were, but they were questions that were defined by a background that made him think that things had to be proved to him according to the way that he needed them proved. In John, especially, we see in John 11 and chapter 14 and chapter 20, we see Thomas appearing. And, and he's, he's got a kind of a sense that, that he, he needs things the way he needs it. It's as though Thomas has a particular way of looking at the world where he's kind of at the center of the world and he needs the world to be organized according to the way he needs it. I'm not going to believe in Jesus unless I see the holes in his hands, he says. Now, there aren't, there aren't any other accounts of the other disciples saying similar things, so it does seem as though Thomas is a slightly different category. So perhaps we have all four types of soil in the disciples of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? So as the, as the disciples are hearing these words, they're not necessarily being encouraged to think about other people. They're being encouraged to think about themselves and their response to God's word. Let's just press in a little bit further. Jesus, in the rest of the chapter, goes on to explain what the various different soil types are all about. He describes the, the, the path as a soil type where, obviously, habitual behavior has taken place because a path has emerged in the field in which the farmer is sowing. Now, I was on a train in Portugal some years ago uh, doing some ministry work over there, and um, I looked out of the window and I saw a guy dressed in modern clothing, a pair of jeans, some, some boots on, a T-shirt, and around his neck was a, a, a sack that was tied around his neck, and, and it, it was an entirely incongruous kind of scene because he, he was broadcasting the, so, the seed into the field, but he was wearing clothes like you and I. I mean, you would have expected him to be wearing the flowing robes of the Middle East or something, because you, know, you just look at it and you think, wow, I didn't think people did that anymore. 
But he was obviously just like you or I, but he had this, this old way of doing things. This, even the way the sack was tied around his shoulders, it just looked like it was something out of a bygone era. And he was scattering the seed. The, the actual word for scattering the seed, as you know, is the word to broadcast from which we get all of our other broadcasting. And so, and so he's broadcasting the seed. And as he's walking across the field, I, I just immediately began to think of the parable of the sower. And of course, right there in the field, you could see where people had walked across the field toward the farmhouse. And where they had taken that same, that same route. Notice that, I said that in American. That's good, isn't it? The same route across the field. The same route across the field. It had packed down the earth and there was a path. Where do you get paths from in your life? where there's habitual, perhaps even addictive behavior that presses down your capacity to receive. There are particular places in your life where you do the same thing over and over and over again and you find that that particular part of your life becomes less less susceptible, less open to, less, less capable of hearing the word of God. Maybe the way that you have learned to speak to your spouse. Maybe the way that you communicate with your children. Maybe the way that, the, the way that you relate to your parents has become so ingrained that now it's difficult for God to give you something else to say. It's difficult for God to give you a new way of thinking and a new way of looking. Are there places in your life where habit and familiarity have so ingrained into your behavior that it's unlikely that you'll ever change. You can't teach an old dog new tricks, can you? I was on a retreat some years ago, many years ago, in the late 80s, before some of you were born. And um, I was trying to work out what God was saying to me about the church that Sally and I were leading in the inner city of London. We were, we were there, we'd seen some great things, but I sensed that God wanted to give a breakthrough and I just couldn't work out what it was. And so I went away on the retreat and on the way back, I still hadn't got any sense of what God was saying. And so I went into the, the forest and I, I walked through the forest and I climbed up onto a big rock where I could see, I could see the forest around me. And I'd taken a, I'd taken a Bible with me, a, a pocket Bible with me. We, we didn't have electronic devices in those days that carried Bibles and I had eyes that you could see a pocket Bible. <laughs> I'd, be, it'd be, I'd be struggling actually seeing the book these days but never mind the, the writing. But anyway, the, uh, I, took the, the, I took the Bible with me and I'm, I'm sitting up on top of the rock and I said, Lord, I'm, I'm going back home today and I don't have anything. What are you saying? 
Now, over the previous few days, I kept on getting this picture in my mind of me carrying a cross around the community. And I kept on saying to the Lord, yes, Lord, I get it. I need to take up my cross and follow you. I know that I need to be a disciple. And that was the end of the conversation. And so I'm I'm on the rock again. I saw this picture of myself and I thought, I think I get that, but I mean. And then the Lord did something that probably, you know, two or three times in my life has happened. He gave me a verse from scripture that I didn't, I just didn't know where it was. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what it was. It was, I just got this, this, this thing in my head, Hosea 10, verse 12. And I thought, I don't even know what that is. So I found Hosea. It's one of those ones where you have to go to the index. <laughs> so I found, found Hosea, got to chapter 10, verse 12. Break up your unplowed ground for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers righteousness on you. Break up your unplowed ground. And then I realized, I said, you want me to carry a real cross around the area, don't you? And behind me, I'm convinced it was an angel. You probably think I'm mad when I tell you this. Somebody said, he's got it, we can go. <laughs> Literally, and I went, what? I mean, it's just on top of a rock. I'm, you know, I'm, it's not like there were people up there with me. And I said, wow, you want, you want me, an English clergyman, let's just be clear about this, Lord. You want me, with all of my insecurities and shyness, to build a cross big enough for me to be crucified on and to carry that around the area? And it was very clear that's what the Lord was saying. And I did that for every day for nine months. And it brought just an amazing breakthrough and revival in that community. See, I... I just got into a familiar pattern with the Lord. That assuming that the things that he was saying to me could only really be fitted into one category. They were kind of metaphorical. Yeah? And I was just grooved and ingrained in one particular way of thinking. I wonder where there's an ingrained, grooved way of thinking for you. Maybe... Maybe you're like me as well, that in some areas of your life, you've noticed that you do make a quick response to a fresh word, but then it kind of tails off. You know, maybe recently, as we've been talking about just the naturally supernatural life that the disciples of Jesus are supposed to live, that, that sure, we're not saying or guaranteeing that anybody's going to be healed, but clearly because Jesus prayed for the sick, you and I need to do the same thing because we're followers of Jesus. So you've kind of followed on them and that. But, but have you found that those early stages of enthusiasm have kind of waned somewhat? And do you find yourself kind of worrying about what people think and wondering whether it's a bit crazy and, you know, all of those kinds of things? It's as though... 
there are obstacles underneath the surface of our initial response that prevent the word that God has spoken to us from taking root. And what would those things be? They would, they would probably be things like inbuilt fears in our life. The fear of what other people think. The fear of not getting it right. The fear of, the fear of finding the disapproval of other people who we see as kind of religious experts. Maybe, maybe fear could be under the surface preventing a fresh word that God is speaking to you. Maybe it's pride. Maybe you present a humble face, but underneath it, you're proud of your humility. Maybe it's shame. Maybe, like me, you know, you're raised by wolves. And they put shame on you as you grew up. And you kind of covered it up and you try to make the best of it. But you don't have to go very far under the surface to feel the shame. To encounter the shame. You, you, feel, you feel ashamed that you're not very clever. You're not very quick. You're, you're, not, you're not very anything. There's, there's something that tells you that you're not up to much. And so maybe, again, you know, think about this healing thing. I'm just using it as an illustration of things that we've encountered just recently. But, you know, you get this fresh word, but then the shame stops you from stepping out. I wonder how many times I have not shared the good news of Jesus simply because... I'm afraid of the response I'll get. It's just shame. Maybe, maybe it's not so much the rocks under the surface, but it's the environment that you've been raised in. Jesus says, Jesus says the thorns grow up with the seeds and they choke them out. It's as though it's an environmental thing. It's a cultural thing. It's a worldview thing. It's as though we're raised up with certain expectations. And so I've said to you before, many evangelicals who trust the word of God and believe it to be a lamp to their feet, a light to their path, people who genuinely, wholeheartedly believe that find themselves as functional agnostics when it comes to God actually doing anything in their life. Actually being miraculous in their life. Now why is that? Well, there's surprisingly a large amount of study that's been done by Christian sociologists. The leading person in this kind of in this vanguard is a man called Christian Smith. He's the professor of sociology up at Notre Dame. And he has conducted the largest survey of young people's spiritual life that's ever been conducted at any place anywhere in the world. He's, he's in, undertaken thousands of interviews and, and looked at every kind and condition of the emerging generation. And that emerging generation now in their 30s have begun to dominate the world with their worldview. 
And the general worldview with which they are raised is called moral therapeutic deism. Moral because they believe in good and ill. Therapeutic because they believe that their right in life is to be happy. And deism in that the majority of them believe that there is a God, but they believe that God is uninvolved in their life. Why do you believe that God may be uninvolved? You may talk to him. He may even occasionally talk to you, but he's not gonna much do anything. Why, why would you believe that? Well, you'd believe that because you have a way of thinking that tells you that that's the correct way of thinking. It's a worldview. It's an understanding. The reason why our worship time today was so important to pre-Christians and unbelievers, to young Christians and immature followers, is because it's very hard to really believe that God is far off and uninvolved if the evidence around you tells you that the people here think that they're actually meeting God. If the people around you are responding as if they're meeting the living God, it changes the way you think. But if, of course, we're all here as the frozen chosen, we stand, we stand like marble columns in the worship without any response or indication that any worship is taking place, anything out of the frontal part of our brain, then of course nobody knows that God's here because nobody knows that anybody else knows that God's here. The reason that Lauren Daigle and uh, Kanye West are so incredibly influential with the songs that they just recently published is because they are driving a coach and horses through deism. They're driving a coach and horses through the prevailing worldview that tells you that if there's a God, he's not involved. Honestly, I never thought I'd see the day when a woman and a man would have such amazing success in their charting music with songs that are so obviously Jesus songs. And why is it? Well, deism, deism is the thing that will cause the greatest hunger in a person's life because you believe that there is a God, but he's not involved. And so then you say, but wow, wouldn't it be great if he was? Do you know what the prevailing worldview was during the Great Awakening? Have a guess. It's not hard. Deism. The Great Awakening came to America and defined the way that America functions today because the embers of that fire are still burning. 
the context into which the gospel was preached and caused a tidal wave of spiritual life sweeping across this nation and the nations of the world was a world that was defined by a sense that God was here but, but not here. He was a God who existed but not involved. And along came the church and said, he is involved, he is Emmanuel, he is with you. And what it does, of course, is it pulls up the thorns and gives space to the word and gives room to the roots. Now, maybe on another Sunday, we'll have to look at this one about, you know, it being your right to be happy. But maybe we don't have enough time this week. But you've probably got an idea what I would think at any rate, wouldn't you? Just simply this. Happiness is an effect and not a cause. It's just an effect. It's just a glorious gift that you receive from time to time rather than the cause of your life. So, here's the big question as we come to the end of our time, just kind of digging into, and I use that, that metaphor advisedly, digging into this particular parable. Are there paths in your life that need breaking up? Are there rocks below the surface that need to be brought to the surface by the plowing that God brings about in times like this when they're exposed to you and you say, I don't want them there anymore, Lord. And he's the one who's able to bring the plow of his word and lift them to the surface and by his grace and mercy remove them. Do you have places in your heart where you know that your environment, your family, your circumstances, the, the way that you were raised, the way that you engage with social media, the way that you understand the world that you live in have defined your expectation and your response to God. And are those thorns choking out the word of God and preventing you seeing the whole gospel, preventing you embracing all that God wants for you? Are these things happening in your life? Well, it would be a shock, wouldn't it if, it, if it wasn't true of us who are disciples or who are wanting to be disciples today. Because it appears as though the first group of disciples were all of the soils. And God was able to change them and Jesus says this, he says, the good soil is defined very clearly. The good and noble heart that is the good soil that receives the word of God is easily identified because that soil produces a hundred times what's put in it. Wow. That's amazing, isn't it? You can't achieve that by effort. You can't achieve a hundredfold increase 
by effort. The only way it can happen is if that's the natural way in which your life responds to the Word of God. And God can do all of that. The the amazing thing is that those disciples, with the exception of poor old Judas, all of those disciples became bearers of good soil and sharers of good news and people who had a hundredfold increase in their life. So here's my recommendation to you. I can't make you do anything and neither can God. Not yet anyway. Because he gives you the freedom right now to make the choice. But here's, here's the recommendation I would make. In the singing of this last song, say to God, God, I see this area of my life that's that particular kind of soil. I don't want it. Plow it up. Make it good soil. I can see the rocks underneath the surface. I can see the paths of habitual behavior. I can see the thorns of a way of thinking and a way of functioning. I I don't want to be like that. I want to be good soil. I want to have a hundredfold increase in my life. Now, it may be that already you can see where those things are true. And if they are, then my encouragement to you is to respond to the Lord in a way that is appropriate with the importance of this word today. Because this word today is so important that the Holy Spirit saw fit to have the first three gospel writers put it in central position within the gospel. It's so important because it'll mean the difference between what it is that our lives produce or not. And so during the singing of this song, I would encourage you to make a response. And you know what I think, and you've heard me say this before, making a response on the inside without any manifestation of that response on the outside means that you can leave this place with it just all kind of being on the inside. My encouragement to you is if you need to come and respond, then come and respond. The prayer team will pray with you. They, they won't interject into your private space. But you know where these soils are active in your life. And you know where you need the Lord to help you. So you make your response as we sing.